0: We just wanted to be around know, anyone with a haircut. We didn't <laughs> yeah. know divisions, right? so that yeah. helped us a little bit. That we didn't—we uh, want rockabilly versus punk versus mod versus suedo versus skin versus grebo versus <laughs> new wave. We we thought everyone with any haircut was cool.
1: Hi.
2: Can I be the can I be the perfect host and, and welcome our guests to Curious Creatures this eve this this evening or this morning or this afternoon? This is Budgie in Berlin and me, Lo Tolhurst in Los Angeles, and we're speaking today with Jenny V and Slim Jim Phantom, who are in Dallas. I'm really quite excited because I'm sitting there, you know, and I've been thinking about talking to, to yourself, uh, Jim, because um, I don't know if we we've, we've actually physically met somewhere in the in in the our past. But I feel like I've known you for a long time because I can hear the music as, and, and I've been back in London for the last two days in my mind. Mm. A place called The Venue in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Did you ever, know, ever get – and, and actually, the place was Legends.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah? We played there quite a few times. Um, Richard Branson was the owner of the club. Right, That's right, right. yes. Yeah, that was one of our big – the moments when um, all all the Rolling Stones came to see us play there. They're all at a table. And it was maybe the last time they've all been together. <laughs> <laughs> Never <laughs> happened uh, since. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and, wearing the t-shirt of found that you're <laughs> playing with them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and we did the opening act. And they asked the headline act, whatever it was back then, some other pub band, to swap with us for the timing. And they said no. No. <laughs> All of these luminaries, including most, you know, most luminescent the all five stones, were at this gig at the venue. And as soon as we finished, they left. Yeah. So, and if they had kind of changed their thing, they would have at least had the Rolling Stones sitting through. Them. But the right. venue was, was a great. One. And you and I have met a few times once was at uh, maybe even a few times at Keith Altham's office. That's what I was
1: going to say. That's the connection, isn't it?
0: Yeah. That that was the one thing about Keith Altham's office, who was a big PR guy. And anytime you would go there old school to do your interviews, you'd go to the office. Yeah. Yeah. And and there was always someone there. Stuart Copeland is my buddy who I've stayed in touch with all these years. We met him there. And there would always be someone in the office up there that there has been a, a kid walking in there, there would always be somebody in that office. <laughs> we we're getting ready to do. There's a walking out or meeting or, and it was always, I, I remember meeting you and Susie there very early on. Goodness. I, I, I we were sleeping on the floor in the back room. I think and we were <laughs>
1: <laughs> the story, the story you told me Jim about, about uh, meeting the first time you met Keith Altham is, is a great story about, you know, how you just sort of turned up and said, well, we're the greatest band in the world and you need to, you know, do something with us. And-
0: uh, we were kicking around London. We were homeless, uh, the whole thing. And we had heard about an office that they represented the stones, the who police, Rod stewart like just every famous name you could imagine this was the office i didn't even know what pr was or public <laughs> but this address was where everyone was you had to go there so i heard it from someone at a party that we were at and the next day i went by myself and knocked on the door oh. and they looked in it was 56 old compton street i'll never yes. forget
1: yes it wow there.
0: that's great memory
2: the address is like brings it all back now. Yes,
0: <laughs> went up the stairs, and I went in there and just said, We're the greatest band in the world. We're from New York. We have nowhere to live, but everyone will regret they don't take care of you know. I had a <laughs> we were kind of flabbergasted and said, Well, you know, where are the others? They're not here. What's your name of the band? We don't have one. Do you have a demo? <laughs> no, <laughs> and they said, come back tomorrow, bring the other two with you. Yeah. So I did. I went back to the same office, had the other two with me in tow, and they asked the same, do you guys have a demo tape? No. Do you guys have any gigs? No. Do you know anyone in town? No. (laughs) Nothing. They were so intrigued, they rented us a little rehearsal room somewhere in Soho, I think. We all walked out there, and we did the whole gig in a tiny little padded rehearsal room that was the size of a... And we did the whole show. We stood on the drum. We argued with each other. We knocked into each yeah. other. We did the whole entire thing. And they right. said, "This is the greatest thing ever." So they um, helped us. They they called around that little pub circuit, right? And we just played them. And they had a little bit of that machine behind them that they were the PR people. And we've been hanging around at the parties and you know squats and get any free nightclubs we could hang around in. And right. we saw you guys play, and it, we just. Word of mouth, and then we were good at it, and and it all spread, and that was very much how London was in 1980. Yeah, I remember seeing you play. They were intrigued by by the story of us, these guys from New York. They have nowhere to live. They're playing here. Okay, so, and we just became fast friends with everyone. But it so was
2: low, just, low, you, you saw the, the homeless boys playing.
1: I saw the, yeah, they, they were called the stray, stray cats by then, but they played at the marquee. I saw you at the marquee, and uh, that must have been like 80, 81, maybe. I don't know. And um, the thing that struck me, because, like, you know, I had I had rockabilly mates, right? So they told me, hey, you've got to go and see these guys. So off oh, it, was, it wasn't that far to me as a sort of leap of, uh, you know, thinking about things it wasn't that far from punk at all it was like it was like the roots of all of that like the energy coming off stage with you guys you know it was just like i understood it immediately i mean i liked you know some earlier rockabilly stuff and things but once i saw like this new version you know like regenerated it was the the magic was there it's great that's really the thing we found in england
0: that Proved our manifesto was that all roads lead to Eddie Cochran, and it, it didn't matter if it was punk or ska or it, it, any, we weren't very big on all that kind of um, dividing the genres. Everyone has to agree on Eddie Cochran.
1: For you, what made you come to England? Had, had you felt like you know, fish out of water living in, you were in Long Island, right? In New York. Yeah. Um,
0: on Long Island, we were tooled up 24 seven. And we had uh, got turned on to, to the music by kind of deep researching a little bit the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and the uh, um, Clapton a song by B Holly. Well, who's that? And the, that extent, the the movie came out, Buddy Holly story. American Graffiti a few years ago. It was just all becoming the right age to be able to make these kind of choices. And uh, for me, I went into New York City one day, train shot straight to Penn Station. I got out, walked downtown to St. Mark's Place, cut over to Third uh, Third Avenue, and with long hair, stopped at the Hair Power, which was a gum-chewing, wise-cracking, new wave girl. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so my hair was cut like Elvis Presley. She said, well, it's about time. I left the hair on the floor there. Walked across the street to Trash and Vaudeville. Got uh, blue suede creepers, D-rings. Walked down the street, got some baggy pants, Andy's cheapies. Further down the street, cheap jacks. Got a black and white bowling shirt and a and a, and a fleck jacket. And then I went home. <laughs> uh, didn't expect anyone to notice. No. <laughs> and Brian was having the same experience as me. He was a little bit ahead. He got his hair cut a week week ago and right and then he and i started a little bit him and me playing a tiny drum kit and then lee was our other friend that we needed a base we wanted to be like buddy holly and the crickets or the blue caps and so that was the evolution of it and a lot of it was coming from you guys in england we were getting the nme six months late or whatever kind of thing at the newsstand at the or like a certain record store that would get it from a newsstand in england and there was a, a there was an article about rockabillies or teddy boys fighting with mods. And we just right. thought it was incredible thing ever. And our goal was always to go and be around. We wanted to find a fourth person who had heard of, <laughs> <laughs> heard of Buddy Holly or, or uh, Ursel Hickey or uh, no, rockabilly a little bit deeper than just the oldie station. Um, we went to England and it was we got off the plane and... You said it was a good idea. No, you said it was a good idea.
1: <laughs> did you think Ringo was going to be waiting for you at the the front of the airport to chauffeur you into London? I did pretty much think that. Terry
0: Thomas and Ringo were going to be there. <laughs> it's kind of, in Britain, those kind of things
2: were ha- happening with greater frequency. You know, skinhead, suedehead, mod. The mods were kind of always coming back and the, and the rockers were coming back. And around the time of punk, we had, like, our guys looking after if we had, you know, some gear to carry. There'd always be, like, a younger guy who was like had the quiff and the yeah. drain pipes and the brothel creepers, and they were always, like, the ones who wanted to carry the gear. <laughs> I don't know what is going on, but it was a crazy time of everything mixed up.
0: Everything was something. That's what we loved about it. We just wanted to be around I don't know, anyone with a haircut. We didn't <laughs> yeah. know divisions, so that yeah. – Helped us a little bit that we didn't. Uh, we were rockabilly versus punk versus mod versus suedo versus skin versus grebo versus new wave. We we thought everyone with any haircut was cool. Yeah, right. We thought that that was without knowing it, organically because it, where we yeah. came from, no scene of any. There was CBGBs and Max's Kansas City, but it's a little bit. I think the legend is a little overblown. There wasn't right. that much going on mm. really as you know maybe a few people downtown but it wasn't any you know tribe everywhere like that's so nice to hear you know because i i really
2: I, you know could really buy into the uh deborah harry you know everybody was like all the clubs are right next to each other and every night talking heads blondie ramones Right. Suicide. They were all like,
1: "Oh, uh, the, the the legend is always much more pervasive than 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 the truth." You know, there, you're right though, Jim. There was uh, there was like a lot of cross fertilization in London because I can remember the first time we we had enough money finally in the band to go out and get stage gear you know like we're gonna get we're gonna get some suits and stuff and my mates i was mates with the guys that run robot you remember robot i I remember those guys yes we
0: went to to all those places and um we thought it was so cool down there there was the king of wyoming that was next to johnson's an american classic yeah yeah and you guys are a little bit older than me sex would have been there but when we got there it was already world's end
1: yeah yes right world's end i remember that one
0: um was, oh, that area was where we gravitated to and um but we were still sleeping on the floor at uh Claudine Riley and Keith Altham's office and then after the first couple of gigs uh the people from ITM, Rod uh Rod McSween and Barry Dickens came to see us play and then we were allowed to sleep on the floor of ITB. Oh you so we were <laughs> Uh, floor of fifty six Old Compton Street to the floor of 117, 119 Water Street. Oh my goodness! Wow. Say, th-
1: so you're moving up? Yeah, moving up. Right? I, yeah. I
2: like this floors we have known. <laughs>
0: My beautiful wife, Jenny V, she went to England as well, being uh, like me, being gravitated to, to go what we thought was cool in England.
3: I did the exact same thing when I was the exact same age as you 18, 19 years old, and that was it. I'm from Sudbury, Ontario, Canada, four hours north of Toronto. It's a mining town, Rim. And I thought, okay, I gotta leave, I gotta go somewhere. And I, Toronto was the obvious choice, but that was too obvious for me. And I wanted to go to where I thought that exactly I would get along with people, and all the music that I loved was birthed there. And so it was the same kind of a pilgrimage in a way for me as well. I didn't have like the most excited, I How do I follow up those stories? I really can't.
2: But you did you stay? So you made the pilgrimage to London. Did you stay there?
3: No, I went back to Toronto. I, the, the hard thing there for me was that I couldn't find people who play in a band. I know that sounds crazy, but nobody had gear or the ability to to get to rehearsal. It was like a bunch of non-committal people. Right. So I ended up doing everything myself. That's I played bass. I taught myself bass when I was a young teenager and I then taught myself to play guitar when I lived there. I spent a lot of time alone. It was funny, you know, it was the opposite right. of you guys having these social connections. I went there and kind of just sat in my flat and was like, okay, I have to do everything myself. So I got a port to studio and I taught myself to play guitar and programmed drums and I made a demo tape, which I then wow. mailing out pretending I had a band. <laughs> I started getting replies and people wanted to see the band play, but there was no band. So it's a good sign. And John Peel actually called my my flat. And wow. so, this is good great. Old
1: demo
3: tape. Yeah. This three-song um, demo tape that I had done. And so I took that all as good. Good signs. And I went back to Canada and did go to Toronto. And with all that, you know, positive reinforcement that I was on the right track, uh, was able to start a band with some people I had met in high school uh, like this. Amazing drummer, rest in peace, Robbie Campbell. He was like the metal head in my town and I was the only goth girl. So he, he and I kind of related and I knew he was a really sick drummer. So he joined my my first band and we were able to get grants from the Canadian government so we could really record. And as much as I miss living in London, it was meant to be that I went home to start cultivating that. And I was still really right. like 20 years old at that time. Wow.
1: wow. That's that's a great story. I mean, what I get from that, I get two points from that one, was one, you found the best thing you have to find for any band, the sick drummer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no band without the drummer. We, we all know that, right? And the other thing is that you know, London was really your, your 40 days in the desert. It's where you found you, right? And, yeah, and I wasn't yeah.
3: really inspired by the scene that was going on at that time. That was more like mid 90s, 95. Yeah. The Britpop era and all those copycat bands that really weren't doing it for me. Like, no offense, menswear or Travis or any of those bands, but it wasn't really my thing. So,
1: right. You wanted to go back to his first band and, and,
3: and. Yeah, and- I was <laughs> like, where's that?
1: <laughs> yeah, by that time, I. I would left England by the middle of the '90s. I was I was I've lived out here longer than I've lived any anywhere else in my life. Now
0: we were from New York, went to England, lived there for a few years. Yeah, and but we had never traveled in America, even though I think we're the most American band ever. Yeah, we were uh, lumped in a little bit with British new wave when MTV started. They had eight videos that they would, and we had one, and they right they got hold of Straight Cat's Strut. We were brought to
1: the states to kind of play a showcase kind of thing and we went to la to play the roxy and i just never left it's funny isn't it that whole thing we had exactly the same experience when they first started they were in that little place in hell's kitchen like that you know like a tiny little room basically mm-hmm. but you were right they only had like six or eight videos a week so we made a video and, you know, we were these strange guys with funny hair and makeup. And they had to put us on. They had to put us on. And that was totally the only reason we got on MTV, because they wouldn't have put us on otherwise if they'd had other videos. You know, but it was like so few things to play. They were like, okay, now we'll put The the Cure on. And uh, that changed everything for us. I remember coming to L.A. and we... We played somewhere, and suddenly, you know, gone with these very serious young men looking at us playing. It was like full of screaming girls, so it was it was kind of a good good change, you know.
0: That's what I want to know, Budgie. When did you have time to practice the drums? Because you're the best. At all, and when did you? be that good that's
2: what I, <laughs> I i it's funny i um i suppose thinking back we it was in, in liverpool <clears throat> excuse me eric's club in liverpool mm. and if we did our kind of what's deemed to be the the number of hours you
1: put in ten thousand right yep. yeah
2: that would have been it but as when i we'd gone from i'd been in a band called spitfire boys <clears throat> and we were given the keys to Eric's, really, to you know go in the the night after the gig and set some gear up, and we could basically use the club to rehearse in, and you know they'd, it couldn't get any better. I didn't have a drum kit, so there was, I think the guy who cleaned the place had a drum kit, so he lent me his kit. Um, so it was all borrowing, all favors, but that's where we put the time in. There was me. Um, Holly Johnson was playing bass with with Big in Japan. Uh, Ian Brody, Lightning Seeds guitar. Bill Drummond, later KLF, later manager of Echo and the Bunnymen and all that. David Balfe was also a member of that. And then, of course, Jane Casey, who was the, our front right. effigy, our singer. Our, and it was all that, really. It was just, you know, we just turn up every day and just argued, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can't play. You can't play. No, you can't play. So you play this then. And so he's, okay, play that and, and force each other. But after that, it was always uh, you played when you were playing and. I never went home and rehearsed. I never practiced my rudiments. I don't know what rudiments are. I know what they are. Yeah.
1: but I, You made your I, own. didn't You told me you made your own rudiments.
2: The only ones I know for sure are the ones I taught myself. <laughs> right.
1: right. I know I know what your secret is because you can sing all your beats, right? He sings all his beats. Like he'd be just sitting in the corner. He starts singing drum beats to things, and they're always... I can pick out any song from what he's singing the beat, you know, like most people come up to you and go, boom, chip, boom, chip, 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 boom. And you go, and they go, what song's that? And, you, and they go, I have no bloody idea, but, but actually, I can tell every time.
2: <laughs> um, I know. I, see, now I have to give away where it really started. <laughs> okay. So when I'm a kid on my own in the little terraced house in, in St. Helen's outside Liverpool, my, you know my parents have gone out for the night on saturday night my brother's already out my sister's probably gone out looking for ringo's drumstick somewhere (laughs) and and i'm in there with a stereo and when i went to sleep i used to sing myself to sleep by singing beatles albums or cliff richard and the shadows and i'd have to Mm -hmm. sing the instrumentals and i had to sing the albums in sequence because if I missed a track out, I'd have to go back almost like lift the needle in my head and put it on again and go through the album. And I was learning albums of music to get me to sleep. My sister thought I was crazy. She's a bit scared, you know. Like most people talk in their sleeps, you sing in yours. Um, do you think that's important, uh, Jim? It's, it's that knowing the song. Yeah. It's, you know so many drummers think it's about you know sitting in the back and keeping a beat but it's like knowing the song inside out somehow
0: I think we I mean Ringo Richard of Starkey who's you know of course we all love him the most and I I think that really the right approach to what's his was to get inside the song and the drums go outward from that kind of you know you make the the song as good as you can by what you're you know, contribution to it can be
1: yeah what what your ability is I mean you know I, I was never you, you know going to be you know this superstar drummer but I loved music and I loved the songs you know and, and I knew what I could add to them I knew what I could put in them and so that's that's what I would do and that's what I concentrate on I mean the thing I've found now is the older I've got the more uh, the more I love playing drums you know back in the, in when I was like in my twenties, I loved playing them, but it but it was like it was like a blood sport, you know, it was like boxing. I was gonna get damaged out there, you know, after a couple of hours, and there was you know, we know the st- blood on the snare. You know, sticks in the eyes. You know, all kinds of things, and and that. But now it's much more like you know. I wouldn't say you know. It's 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 like you know. I've become like an old jazz guy, but I love I love just like the mantra of the drums sitting behind it and just getting right inside that that rhythm. I, I saw you play uh, at the Greek uh, a couple of years ago now, right? And I, I was watching you, and I was thinking, wow, that's exactly what Jim's getting out of it. It's like it's just the the pure joy of it. And I was standing in a little place at the front and uh, Tony Canal from from No Doubt was standing behind me. And I, I know Tony, you know, from uh, different things. And uh, I turned around and he had the same big smile on his face that I did, you know, and and that to me, that said everything about, you know, what it is to just be up there and playing playing the music, playing the drums. You know, it's, it's really uh, all the drummers that I admire, and I include both of the drummers that are here right now, um, they inhabit the music. They're not just, you know, they're, they're not timekeepers. They inhabit the music, and without them, music's not there. And that's uh, that's my my rant for today, for this session.
2: I, I just want to say how emotional I feel.
3: I feel emotional too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's so true. And that I, I can relate to that as a, a, a bass player because when I was talking about writing my own songs and doing my own thing, that was a whole other experience. But now that I play in other people's bands and I play their songs, I can truly just not even focus, just have a rest, just Mm -hmm. go up there and enjoy my playing. And the, the word joy, all that you said, it's like embodying the music and not having any like emotional turmoil or ego or anything about the song that I may have wrote at a time in my life, like just going out there just to rock right? and just, in that moment is the, the best feeling in the world. And yeah, as I'm getting older, it I, I agree with you completely. You just have a connection with it that, I don't know, you can't describe it unless, I guess, you know, as a musician. Yeah, so, that same agree. night
0: that you were talking about that we at the Greek, that was one of our most magical nights that was because uh, the special guests on the Cats show was Eagles of Death Metal. And Jenny's gang played right. uh, as right. guests that night. And it was all of our pals, you, Tony, it was so many of our super pals were there. I had the extra, you know, drum, you know, drummer world of right, (laughs) no one else could see it because it was right behind the curtain, exactly where it stops with Stuart Copeland standing 18 inches away from me the whole time. And I'm like trying to like (laughs) put a smile on his face. And like, I have to be careful because once in a while we all know this as drummers, you like you do something pretty good and then you feel it a little too tasty (laughs) and in my head I'm fighting like not trying something really crazy that you may or may not pull off. Right. So I, I just let. That's when your years of kind of training. I like, don't do it. Don't listen to that voice. This song. Don't try to do some lick from Roxanne right now. Just to show. Stupid. That's when you. That's when it takes over. Yeah. You know the. You know the joy of being in the moment and not letting anything creep in yeah. there.
2: Hey. We have a congratulations, um, Jenny V and Slim Jim. You, you, you were married last year, right? Yes, we were.
3: Yeah. Kind of like yeah. like a Zoom thing yes. with a judge. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you're married now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a, a slightly grander plan that was supposed to um, involve going to the courthouse in Beverly Hills. That part, yeah. part was all a good plan. And then that evening... Didn't get past the, the planning stages into our before calling everyone we know part. Everyone was going to come to play the Roxy. Wow. Have our party and then get remarried again by Jesse Hughes uh, in his reverend uh, uh, collar <laughs> after it was legal by the judge in Beverly Hills. Right. And we plan to call everyone. We have the straight Cats, Lal, yeah. you're going to have to play. Budgie, you're going to have to come <laughs> out. But everyone had to come. It was going to be – we would start at 4 in the afternoon and until they closed the doors. Everyone has to come and do their bit. Um, but the the world's illness came, and things got changed, and we didn't make all the calls. So we're still – you're still going to get that call. Oh, <laughs> The call that we did get three, four months later was in a number I didn't recognize, and it was the county clerk's office of Los Angeles County Uh-oh. and saying – um your your license is going to expire you have to do this now and now now we're honoring these licenses do you want to get married so i'm um, still want to get married. so yell on the yeah. phone do we still want to get married? yes yes okay tomorrow 9 a.m we got my son and jenny's friend netta to be our witnesses and we propped up the zoom like this the next morning and it was us on one end and just like you guys there was a county clerk and a judge Took maybe three minutes. That's a wonderful story. And where you know we've yet to pull the trigger on the on the big charity show though. That's we're gonna. That's gonna be when the dust is a little bit more settled. Every two drum kits, four guitars. Everyone's got to play from Three Cats down to the Cure. Everyone's in between. Everyone's got to turn up and play. You make such a beautiful couple. Beautiful couple. Uh, I'm
1: Exactly, you know, it's funny because that's that's the the best kind of marriage, I think. Because, like, I got married to Cindy, and um, we just did it like on on a whim. We went out to Vegas, you know. We got married in this chapel. My friend came in, was from England, and I said, you know, we're just going out to Vegas. You are going to be my best man. Off we go. And uh, you know, my first wedding was like you know this huge extravaganza, and that didn't last that long. And this one's lasted, you know, a very considerable time now. And um i always think it's because we got married in vegas it was really funny uh, one of the smothers brothers was behind us getting married at the same time so it was like <laughs> here, Dick. Which one? gosh you know you've got me there I, the one that's been married a lot uh, the crew cup or, or the more suave one no the crew cut one the crew company, right?
2: Okay. Uh, if we're if as we're on wedding stories, okay. <laughs> my my mine was eleven years ago and took place in Hong Kong. Oh. Wow, 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 which is where my my what my, my my wife was was born in Hong Kong from uh, English English parents, we should say, because um, Hong Kong was still the British territory out there. Um, yeah. But I was on tour with. Let's see, in 2010 with um, a band from Brighton, and we were in Japan. So I I, I managed to wangle a ticket to go back to England or back to Berlin via Hong Kong so I could meet my future father-in-law and do the right thing and ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. Wow,
1: dedication.
2: I had only been to Hong Kong once before in 1982, I believe it was, and it was a very different place, but I was so nervous, you know, going out on the ferry to this little island and wondering mm-hmm. how I'd be greeted. Really? Anyway, I, I had to get because it was in Hong Kong. It's going to be difficult getting people over there, you know. So because right. we, we, but we got married at um, <laughs> now, what's it called? A cherry cotton tree drive registry office in Hong Kong. It's it's just a like, so
1: <laughs>
2: romantic little name sounds very uh,
1: romantic it
2: was it was uh and it's a funny place i have kind of managed to get back there on occasion as well you know
0: that's a free action happening on this one man this is hong kong to brighton to japan to You're gonna get upgraded yeah
1: now, right? <laughs> there's, there's a song in there somewhere isn't there there's there's a song you know yeah. brighton to hong kong to yeah there's a song there i
0: think we have to put it- Right here, everyone's gonna come back with a verse by uh, by the next interview. <laughs> now, do you remember Carlton's office when we met? Now that you reckon you. I was? I
2: I remember Claudine like it was yesterday. And Michael being around. I can't picture. I can't picture. I um, have Keith's face there yet. But I remember Compton Street. It's strange yeah. how some things are really clear and other things are kind of, can't you know, cut, as if there's a blank spot. Well, it's
0: one thing that happened there was a life changing um, event. Uh, how it, the the little precursor of that was, we were in a in a pub, just wandering around in Soho, and Ronnie Lane, if you remember Ronnie yeah, right. Lane small faces and the faces and um, was walking out of a pub and he had that seventies kind of like Teddy boy thing. He had a drape coat on right. short uh, rain pipes, big white creepers, but he was like, um, you know, mod. He had like, he had the mixed things going yeah, on. Yeah. And he literally bumped into us and we were all kind of tooled up at disheveled at the same time, wandering around. And, He said, who are you guys? And we told him the same story. We're from New York. Nobody knows us. Uh, He said, come with me. One minute later, and we got into a black taxi with him, and he took us to um, Twickenham, where he lived, in some ramshackly, spinal tap mansion with chickens and dogs, gravel driveway, (laughs) kids running around. And he announced to his wife, Katie, we have guests. And we stayed in his house for about two weeks and while we got our whole world together
1: and arranged those gave keith altham the time to find the gigs and that that ladies and gentlemen is the is the healing power of music right there right
2: yeah. i I can follow that story up with only a mild story because we were at a pub in Covent garden one night with spitfire boys and we walked in this place and i think the guy the bass player and a couple of mates from uh sweet were at the bar yeah. Okay. And we all kind of couldn't help ourselves, but just went we just haven't got a clue what to do. <laughs> and I think we we then had to run out the pub because he was about to nail us, you know, he's about to yeah. like because he was right. like, he wasn't most pleased.
0: Right. <laughs> guys were tougher than they
2: looked.
1: I, yeah. yeah. There you go. There you go. What gets me,
2: it said. Well, this is a lovely conversation. It's it's a, so lovely, touching base. Yeah. It, I, as I say, it felt like we've always known each other. And Jenny, it's so lovely
1: to meet you. It, it's all very emotional stuff for me. This it's it's very beautiful. Thank you so much for taking your time out and talking to us. We we owe you one, and Jenny as well. We'll see you soon, Paul. budgie. Yep. I'm a super fan of your drumming,
0: and you know, I'm. So. I'm still singing the songs, Jim.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yep. Jenny, it's been a pleasure. What a pleasure. Look forward to seeing you, the, uh, both of you it's very soon.
3: What's
2: See you, kids. Bye. Bye.
1: Now, Peter, our friend Peter from Berlin, has a question for us. Okay which is a very interesting question. How is it to watch your own cover band? Does it make you proud or is it more like, pardon my French, uh, drinking your own Ooh, urine? So oh my.
2: <laughs> I've only had two occasions yeah. where I've, I, I've never seen a Susan, the Banshee's cover band. Yeah. Um, but I think it was Cleopatra records based out of, uh, in L.A. L.A., yeah. Well, um, the, they put together some bands that chose to cover B- Susan Banshee's songs. Yeah. And the funniest thing was hearing the approximation of, like, Susie's constantly changing London pronunciation. Right. And the way right. she just pronounces words. And, of course, it was a bit like listening to old cartoons of the Beatles when they got regional accents all wrong. It it's right. as close as you get. It's like me trying to put an American accent yeah. on And I'm probably right. somewhere south of Brooklyn, north of Los Angeles, yeah. you know, right.
1: Could north of any- Los Angeles, <laughs>
2: from west of Atlanta. Yeah. Be anywhere in a 5,000 kilometer radius, you know? Right. Um, so it, it, it was a little, a little painful, but do you have, go on. Have you seen any cure,
1: um, Oh have I seen any cure kind cover of bands I have seen I think you a know lot.
2: them you've met them I, mean. I
1: do know them and and I have two two thought processes on this one uh, not thought process I have two thoughts on this hmm. um in Los Angeles where I live I have um, made friends with the best cure tribute band and they're called the curse and uh, Brian who is is the the singer and guitarist very i mean he does not look like robert but he's very very close in sound and uh technique and everything and he's you know he's a very nice man and his band is is very good and a couple of times um once to celebrate they've been going for like 16 years you know they've they've been doing it for a long time and they asked me to come and play with them when they, they played some uh a show like a you know a commemorative show for their 16 years and it was a lot of fun and it and it was great and if i closed my eyes you know it was very 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 close and um then they returned a favor for me because i asked them you know we did uh, a gig for uh, a charity so i said you know i need i need to have a band so they came along and um played and that was very good you know and and i'm I'm sort of humbled and flattered at the same time. That's the way I think about them. You know, um, I have seen a couple of tribute bands that were less than stellar. Then I had a had a situation Well, not a situation. I, I recently did a book tour just before the pandemic down in South America, in, in, in Peru and Chile and Argentina. And part of the thing for me going down there was, well, I'll talk about the book and that, but you know what? I could, you know, make, more of the situation. I could play somewhere. Right. So I was kind of like Chuck Berry, you know, I I did this sort of thing where, you know, we put out feelers to get people, you know, that played in Cure Tribute bands in those, those areas, like in, you know, Arequipa in, in Peru and in, uh, in Chile, in Santiago and in um, Buenos Aires in in Argentina. And so we get these, Cure cover bands, and I would never have played with them. I would see their uh, YouTube video and decide which one I thought was the best and pick them. And then I would send them a list of six songs or five songs, say, Please learn these, and I'll play drums with you on them. And then I would just turn up on the day. Probably not even sound check. Maybe a minute or two before the show, and we'd just sit there and we'd go, "Okay, we're going to do this one, that one, this one, this one," and a play. And it was okay as long as we stuck to the same arrangement. Sometimes they had, you know, for some reason, they changed the arrangement a little bit and extended it. So, you know, I'd be sitting at the back shouting out, "You know, four bars changes," you know, something <laughs> like this. But and and they were all great. And what was really great,
2: mm.
1: always was the bass player. The bass player was always excellent in the, any of these bands. The thing where it was a little difficult, and it wasn't... It's absolutely, absolutely not their fault. They are all great musicians that I played with, and they were all really sincere and, mm. and very nice people. But because, you know, I'm playing South America, and it's their second language, you know, they're singing in English, it's their second language, and I play, I play against the vocals. I'm not playing... I'm not counting bars and beats generally you know except when i am but listen to the singer
2: so you're listening to them yeah the weight yeah yeah the way
1: of the vocal the way the vocal is going how it's going and i'm playing to that so when english is your second language sometimes some of it's lost in translation a little bit and and they were singing something and i was thinking to myself Mm -hmm. that's probably how it sounds but that's definitely not the word (laughs) <laughs> saying can you remember <laughs> any of the words <laughs> yeah no i don't I, you know i mean my spanish is awful so i cannot you know i'm not going to be here and criticize anybody no no I, but, I, but I it was me. different it was yes. different so you know to to peter's question is generally i've had good experiences with that and uh you know i'm not going to join one anytime soon but i from time to time it, it's quite, kind of fun to play with them and uh, you know, enjoy that part of it.
2: Okay. Well, the second part, the answer I could give is I had an interesting experience in Berlin. Hmm. Um, old friend of mine, dear friend, who's no longer with us, um, is Bill Rieflin. He was playing with R.E.M.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: And um, they came through. They were They were recording probably one of their last albums. And it was the most... Surreal situation. Um, so I had, um, I was, I was visiting um Bill and mm-hmm. they were off to their gig, so we were all congregating in the uh, the, the grand foyer of the Hyatt Hotel on Potsdamer, which is not far from the old um, uh, Hans-Satone Studios where yes, right. they were recording and where Susan the Banshees did some recording when the wall was still up. So, it's a long circuitous story. Also in the same hotel were Pearl Jam. Wow. So I had Eddie Vedder sitting on one side, and Mike Mills sitting on the other side of me. And Mike Mills was proceeded to tell me that every year on Halloween, he puts together a Susan the Banshee's tribute band. <laughs> <laughs> I say, you're having me on, aren't you, Mike Mills? You're You're just winding me up. And no, no, he wasn't. He then he said you should check it out. And he he showed me this little recording, and it, it it was like really faithful rendition and great vocalist. Um, I don't know if he's still doing it, but you know, I not only was I sitting with the voice that that makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end when you hear it live, Eddie's voice and and the, um and Mike and and I don't think Michael Stipe was around. He lives also, he has a place in Berlin, I think. Um, it was just one of those surreal moments where you just find yourself surrounded by characters from other bands and they're all kind of talking to you rather than the focus being the other way. Because you know, I was... What
1: amazes, uh, yeah. amazes me is, is that they have time in their life and in their head to to do a band other than themselves. You know, that's that's what I would find straight. Well, yeah. I don't I'm, think
2: at that point there that REM were at the busiest. I think right. they were I mean, things were winding down, I think. But right. um you know, so perhaps Halloween is not the busy night. <laughs> Whereas right. with the, the Banshees would always It's probably be a busy Halloween. night, yes. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie Producer, Joe Wong Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier
1: Executive producer, Mark Cates Associate producer, Sophie Wilde Digital marketing, Margie Taylor Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kay Music production, Jack Knife Lee curious
2: creatures is on the web and you can access us at
1: www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com and you can reach us on instagram and facebook at curious creatures official twitter at cure creatures
2: to find more of the best music podcasts visit doubleelvis.com or follow at double elvis on instagram or at DoubleElvis elvis on twitter
1: Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.